Hello and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast on Warren Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Baggini. For the remainder of our first series, we're turning to our big annual lectures hosted in London, Edinburgh, Cardiff and Dublin, before finishing up with our annual debate. Today we have the 2021 Annual London Lecture, a series that started in 1998. This has featured the world's leading philosophers, including Patricia Churchland, Ray Langton, Alistair McIntyre, Thomas Nagel, Derek Parfit, Mary Warnock and Bernard Williams, among many others. This year we were delighted to invite Sally Haslanger, Professor of Philosophy in Women's and Gender Studies at MIT. She's published in Metaphysics, Theory of Knowledge, Feminist Theory and Critical Race Theory. She's deeply committed to promoting diversity in philosophy and beyond, and was a founder and convener of the Women in Philosophy Task Force. In 2015, she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Sally's talk analyses some terms which are often used loosely and interchangeably, systemic injustice, structural injustice and institutional injustice. Using racism as a paradigm case, her talk sketches an account of society as a complex system and shows how relations that make up the structures are constituted by social practices. And this helps us locate some of the leverage points for social change. After Sally's talk, there's discussion featuring questions from our live online audience. Before that, Here's Sally Haslanger on systemic, structural and institutional injustice. What's the difference? So, in 1963, after the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church that killed four girls, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Denise McNair and Carol Robertson, Martin Luther King gave a eulogy for three of them. One passage reads... They are the martyred heroines of a holy crusade for freedom and human dignity. And so this afternoon, in a real sense, they have something to say to each of us in their death. They say to us that we must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, the philosophy which produced the murderers. I think this is a truly moving quote, not just because of the context, but because even in that moment, Martin Luther King was not just focusing on the murderer, the assailant, um, but was stepping back and thinking about the structure of racism and the structures of injustice that, that were at issue. And so he's asking us, asking us to think not just about the individuals, the individual criminals, the individual bad actors, but about structures. Here's another quote from Tanahisi Coates. He says, but all of our phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions, all land with great violence upon the body. So here are some questions I think those two quotes raise for us. First, how should we understand systemic and structural racism? What does it mean to say that injustice is systemic or structural? Are these different terms for the same thing? How does systemic and structural racism, as Coates says, land upon the body? 
And how might we address such racism? And how in particular might philosophy help? So let's now turn to what societies are and how to think about societies as complex systems. Some systems are simple, like the engine in your car. They're you know, made up of parts and the interactions between the parts are predictable. Uh, others are chaotic, where, gosh, there's no order to it at all. And uh, that's disorganized complexity. And then there's a, a third kind of system, which is organized complexity. It's kind of on the border of chaos, but it doesn't really end up chaotic because there is enough order to it. And in complex systems, um, the, the complex systems are self-organizing, self-reproducing or adaptive and nonlinear or stochastic. So they don't happen in this sort of predictable way, but they're not completely chaotic. The behavior of individuals in the system is unpredictable, but their interactions give rise to stable emergent features of the whole by virtue of the internal structure. So ecosystems, I think many of us have you know, learned very early that this is how ecosystems work, economies, the climate, brains, anthills, and societies. The structure of a system affects the individuals in it and the interactions that are possible. And so in such systems, local interactions can, can spontaneously self-organize without external intervention or central authorities. Systems are also material. They are not simply composed of mental states or actions. So social systems, I mean, are material in this sense. I, I raise this point because there are some people who think about the social world as all about joint intentionality and joint agency and such like that. So it is kind of in the head. Um, but the, the conception of social system I'm working with, they're material. Think of transportation systems, healthcare systems, judicial systems. These are social systems. They're also embedded in broader physical systems, the environment, that affects their functioning. The broader systems may impose constraints, physical laws, or provide inputs, like the weather or the climate. There are very few closed systems um, because all of these systems are interacting with each other. The environment of a system may include other systems, and because systems do not entirely saturate a social space, systems can overlap and intersect. So here's an example, school. There are you know, higher ed and the, the, the children in the elementary schools sort of are part of a system with other schools and those are part of a system that builds up into higher ed, et cetera. But in addition, the school um, is part of a neighborhood and it has an impact, at least in the US, on real estate prices because people move to certain neighborhoods in order to be in a school system that is better for their kids. So that neighborhood system also involves, you know, not just real estate, but adult connections, community, because schools will often provide a space for community activities. Children play in the playground after school and so parents get to meet each other, et cetera. In addition, um, the schools provide a space for legal and social services to engage with the community. So in the United States, uh, the medical system is, is pretty bad and haphazard. Um, so the school nurse can be the front line for children in getting them medical care or legal protection should that be necessary. In some schools, as we know, they now have stationed armed police officers because 
of school violence. So structures are networks of relations. They form the skeleton of the system and they consist of nodes and relations or nodes and edges if you're thinking in graph theory. Social relations in turn are established in practices. For example, X is a mother of Y is a biological relation, but it's also a legal and social relation. So I am not biological mother of my children, they're adopted, and the possibility of my being in the relation of mother to them um, was made available and possible through law. Social relations, in turn, are formed by participation in practices. So the X is a mother of Y relation, that gets formed and we come to occupy it by participating in a set of practices mothering practices in this case. So what are practices and social relations and how do they make up structures? So let's start with a social practice. Coordination around resources, which are things of positive and negative value, is a fundamental human task and our ability to develop flexible forms of coordination that can be passed down through social learning is the key to our evolutionary success. Now note, the term resources in English tends to suggest positive valence. So it tends to be you know, something of positive value. But in the tradition that I'm working within, the term has been appropriated to talk about things of negative or positive value. So when uh, we're thinking about coordinating in distributing or manipulating a resource, that might also be something of negative value. It might be toxic waste. What are we going to do with our waste? Where are we going to put it? How do we coordinate in doing that? Coordination relies on meaning, symbols, and default assumptions and associations. That is culture, or what I call a cultural techne. It relies on that to shape our behavior. I use the term cultural techne rather than culture for a couple of reasons. One is that culture is a, a very broad word with lots of associations, and I want to be sure that when I use it, I'm using it in a rather narrower way than it might be used by others. And I use the word techne because it's a set of tools, a set of tools that we develop skills in using. And so the cultural techne is something that enables us to coordinate with each other. We not only learn you know, in these, in learning the cultural techne, what is edible, but develop cuisines and menus and daily and holiday rituals. So for example, a cedar waxwing doesn't have to be taught by its parents to eat holly berries because it is pre-programmed to eat little red round things. It will do it even if you throw red beads on the sidewalk, it will go down and try to eat the beads because it didn't have to learn that through social learning. But humans, we know, start off um, very malleable and they can be trained to do all kinds of things or socialized to do all kinds of things, speak different languages, attend to different things. And we teach them what to eat, what berries are edible and what berries are not edible. And that's to say that, that the eating is a kind of cultural a skill that we develop um, to develop a sensitivity to what is edible, what is not edible, but we also don't eat everything that is edible by humans because some things that are maybe even nutritious, um, we don't allow ourselves to eat. So in some cultures they eat um, insects and other cultures they don't. 
In some cultures, they eat um, animal dead animals, and in other cultures, they don't. On my account, an ideology is a cultural technique gone wrong. It obscures or distorts what is valuable, and or it organizes us in unjust or harmful ways. So I'll develop that as we go along. So there are a number of constraints on agency. Any human behavior is conditioned by multiple factors. Consider a meal. We've just been talking about food, so let's continue talking about food. It is constrained by the physical demands of the human body. There are some things that are edible and some things that are not, some things, kinds of vitamins and proteins and such that our body needs. It's also constrained by the geographical context and the edible things in it. So in some places, you cannot grow or even gain access to certain kinds of food. It's also constrained by the social, political, and legal context that makes certain edibles salient, available, and safe. So political trade treaties will enable us to transport certain edible things from where they're grown to another climate where they couldn't even possibly be grown. Uh, cuisines and traditions, cultural traditions, make some edibles more salient than others. And of course, we nowadays have um, systems to protect us and make sure that things that are sold in the stores are safe, or they should make sure they're safe. There are also economic const constraints on what we can afford. So not all food is accessible to everybody. And also the social meaning of the different foodstuffs, and that is culture. Consider Donald Trump when he invited the Clemson uh, football team to celebrate at the White House, as they say on NPR, feast fit for a Burger King, Trump serves fast food to college football champs. So people thought this was ridiculous because when champions are invited to the White House, they expect a banquet, and instead uh, Trump provided fast food. He provided Burger King and McDonald's and such like this. And so what was interesting about this kind of case for our purposes is the social meaning of the president and a, and a celebratory dinner seemed at odds with the kind of fast food sort of choices that were made. So semiotic communities share a cultural technique. Public meanings are internalized as we learn the languages of our local cultures. And this is the basis for our fluency in social skills and capacities for code switching. I share some cultural tools with philosophical colleagues across the globe, others with my neighbors, and still others with my dogs. So dogs are an important part of our community, and they learn a, social a cultural technique with us so that the dog and the person can coordinate. Tools that are designed for one purpose are sometimes used for other purposes, including critique. So you know how we use screwdrivers to open up paint cans and things like that. Well, the same is true of language and other kinds of signaling tools. And this term bricolage, that was um, a Claude Levi-Strauss's term for handyman. And he's thinking, a oh, bricoleur was the handyman. But this idea that you just use what's ready to hand to try and manage the coordination with those you're, you're with. William Sewell, who's a social historian, works primarily on the French Revolution, but also has done important work on social structures. He says, users of a culture will form a semiotic community in the sense that they will recognize the same set of oppositions or what we're calling social meanings 
and therefore be capable of engaging in mutually meaningful symbolic action. To use the ubiquitous linguistic analogy, they'll be capable of using the grammar of the semiotic system to make understandable utterances. So the term semiotic is just to mean a system of meaning, nothing fancy, just a system of meaning. And we use systems of meaning to speak when we speak a language, but there's also a lot of other things that we, we use to communicate with our bodies, with traffic lights, with signs, with all different kinds of signals and such like that. So a semiotic system is just a system of meanings. And what he's saying here is that just as we speak a, a language and so depend on the system of meanings, um, that doesn't you know, determine what we say. We, we have freedom in choosing what to say, even though it is structured by the grammar of our language. And similarly, our social interactions are structured by the grammar of social meaning. And I'm suggesting that a practice is composed of social meanings and resources that have um, a looping interaction between them. So for example, the bunny, the bunny can be understood as a pet or as food, or as pelt, and those are terms within our cultural techne, depending on where we are, that will, will mediate our interpretation of the bunny. So we internalize the schemas that are available in the cultural techne, say the pet, and we then notice and pay attention to certain things in the world, in the bunny, that are salient, made salient, because we have this interpretation of it as a pet. And that filters what is available then for forming attitudes like, oh, how cute, or oh, I wanna pick it up, or oh, et cetera, et cetera, because we're interpreting it as a pet. If we were interpreting it as food, I doubt very much we'd say, oh, how cute, I wanna pick it up. Then we act on those attitudes and interact with the bunny or the resource in general. And so we breed bunnies to be slow and cozy and sort of be willing to sit on our laps and things like that. And that reinforces the interpretation of the bunny as a pet. This also happens not just with bunnies, but here's another example, a woman, is she a friend? Is she a mother? Is she a sex object? Depending on our cultural techne and our sort of frame of reference, we would interpret her in different ways and respond to her differently. And that would affect, then again, how she occupies her role in the world. Another example, a black man. Is he a friend? Is he a janitor? Is he a criminal? And then again, we have uh, these tools for interpreting and perceiving certain aspects of the world. So to general, to put it as a general term, social practices are patterns of learned behavior that at least in the primary instances enable us to coordinate as members of a group in creating, distributing, managing, maintaining, and eliminating a resource due to mutual responsiveness to each other's behavior and the resources in question as interpreted through these shared meanings or sculptural schemas which compose the social techne or the cultural techne. So that's what uh, a practice is. And now let's see how the relations are built up in the context of practices. Some coordination problems, say they're called correlative problems, require us to act in the same way. What side of the street do we drive on? So here we have a, a problem. What side of the street do we drive on? 
we're going to develop a practice, we're going to learn behavior, learn a pattern of behavior, You and we're going to develop signs and traffic lights and lines down the road and all of that sort of stuff to support that coordination. And in the case of a correlative problem, we all act in the same way, all drive on the right or all drive on the left. Other coordination problems, these are called complementary problems, require us to act differently, but in sync. Another example of this would be ballroom dancing, division of labor, resource distribution. So when you ballroom dance, you don't all sort of do the same thing. One person steps back and the other person steps forward, right? That's complementary. We, we complement each other in our actions. So Kaylin O'Connor um, uses the idea of a complementary problem to talk about um, gender and gender inequality. She says, complementary problems are solved by establishing roles that are suitably related, but we need more than roles. There's a function that social categories can play in these cases, in particular, actors can use social categories to identify what sort of role each actor should play in social interaction. So, for example, categories solve the challenge of coordinating ballroom dance, step forward if you're a woman and backward of a man, and step forward if you're a man and back if you're a woman. So these are different steps in the ballroom dance, but they're, they're based on a categorization of the dancers as a woman or a man. And so the categories help because if you go to walk into a, a dance hall and you don't know anybody, but you know how to dance, you can walk up and, or someone can walk up to you or you can walk up to them and say, let's dance and not have to negotiate what you're going to do. Because if you're a woman and he's a man, then you already know whether you step forward or step back. The constraints imposed by the relations then affect the dynamics of the system. But we might ask, what is the source of such constraints? Where do they come from? Law, policy, culture, and community constrain possibilities by providing the stage setting or structure for action. So consider the relation between a mother and a child. Typically, that's thought of as a, as a very intimate, dyadic relationship. But that relationship is constrained in multiple ways by institutions and communities and other individuals. So legislators, judges, and law enforcement have an effect on the mother-child relation. So as I mentioned, in my relationship with my children, that was made possible by a judge. The judge signed papers to say that I was their mother. You can also, doctors and insurance companies, they manage the relationship. Who can make decisions for that child? Policymakers, bureaucrats, and social workers. Social workers have, a, have an opportunity to take a child away from a parent. And so they have, and there are rules for child protection that manage and constrain the relationship between mother and child. Schools and teachers, you know, they can involve parents or not involve parents. They can report to Child Protective Services, et cetera. The pastor, churches have a lot of influence on how families are formed in the nature of families. In addition, families of origin, grandparents, other caregivers affect the mother-child relationship, of course, a father or a spouse. And all of these 
affect the relation, what is possible, how those constraints and enablements are organized to set the stage setting for the mother-child interaction. Individuals can have good intentions and resist problematic forces working on them and their relationships, but this doesn't alone change the structure. So for example, my relationship with my children um, includes their birth families. We have open adoptions, and I believe it's a good thing for adopted children to have ongoing relationships with their birth families. But my, I still have the power to cut them off. That's what the law gives me. Even if I don't want that power, even if I think that using that power would be wrong, that doesn't change it. It doesn't change it for other people, and it doesn't change the law, my just not wanting it. Moreover, um, there are ways in which my family disrupt and challenge some of the expectations of school teachers or social workers and such like that. And so, yes, it does in an individual way, but it doesn't change the culture, uh, the bionormative assumptions about mother-child relationships. So I mentioned before there are structures, systems, and also institutions. And I'll just say a little bit about institutions because there's disagreement over what it is to be an institution. And some in the social theory think of any social system to constitute an institution. But I think that there are reasons we might wanna distinguish different kinds of institutions along several dimensions. Uh, one would be explicit versus implicit forms of coordination, uh, rule governed versus skill governed, uh, created by design versus emergent. And I think there's a use for the notion of social institution if we think of it as systems created by design and governed by an explicit set of rules, for example, a university or a church. A neighborhood might be an example of a system, but not an institution, because the relationships between people in a neighborhood is going to be implicit. It's not really rule governed. You couldn't sort of specify the rule for how you're supposed to interact with your neighbors, et cetera. And it isn't designed in advance, but emergent in, in most neighborhoods. So the way I think of institutions is that they're a form of system. Um, they are the more formal systems. But I bring this up because I wanna emphasize that not all systems are formal in this kind. We have, because of the cultural techne, when we learn the cultural techne, terms of interaction may be implicit, skill-governed, and emergent, so quite at odd or quite different from a formal institution. Institutional power evolves authority distributed by the rules of the organization, where cultural power or symbolic power, or you know, these are what Bourdieu calls social capital or cultural capital, those are things that will often come to individuals not by virtue of institutional authority, but by virtue of role, like race or gender. So men have a kind of power over women in many circumstances, not because there's an institution that's been created by design and set rules about men being in charge, but it still happens nonetheless. So how does power land on the body? So a structure of stable social relations produces individuals who are highly motivated to conform all by themselves. That's a quote from Althusser. Those who are socially fluent don't think twice about what to do. Performing the role comes naturally, but it is second nature. 
So drawing again on Althusser, he talks about the difference between repressive state apparatuses and ideological state apparatuses. And when he's talking about repressive apparatuses, he has in mind uh, ways of getting people to conform to the terms of coordination by coercion or violence. So that's repression. Another kind is that you don't have to use coercion because you get individuals to buy into the system and the practices and the ways of life and the roles. And they buy into it and then they do it all by themselves. And so this is where social identities often play a very important role. So my identity as a mother um, has me doing all kinds of things that no one has to coerce me to do. But some of them may not be the best thing, right? Some of them in the division of parental labor, it may be better to do things differently. But because I have taken on the role of mother and I identify with the tasks that have been assigned to me in that role, uh, no one has to coerce me. I just do it all by myself. In addition, there are hybrid forms where, in this case, the police officers are repressing the individual, but they themselves have taken on a role and identity where this is fine and appropriate and good as far as they see it. They they see themselves as successful because they do this. And so ideological shaping of individuals isn't always to be exploited, but sometimes it is a way to get people to oppress and repress others. So let's move to social change. What are the levers for social change if we have this conception of systems and structures? To motivate critical reflection and invite transformation, an important step is to change the material and semiotic conditions so that reliance on the problematic cultural technique does not achieve the intended coordination. So let's return to the picture that I had before. Here we are engaged in these practices. We're interpreting the world through our cultural techne. We're forming attitudes based on that. We're interacting with the world that's reinforcing the, the social meanings. And so this is the practices that set up the relations that form the system. So where are the leverage points? Well, we can change the material conditions or we can change the social meanings. So one strategy that people rely on is private action. So I'm gonna do things differently. As I mentioned in my case, I'm not going to cut the birth parents off from my children because I believe that the more love, the better. Okay, but my private action isn't sufficient to change the law. And more generally, one's own private action is not sufficient to change the structure of relationships that manage power. Individual resistance may provide an example for others to follow, but the impact is usually small and there are big risks and costs for individuals. Another strategy is to convince elites or become one who has the power to enact through law, policy, etc., change that can be helpful. So this is a favorite strategy of academics or intellectuals. Become a lawyer, become a judge. But recall, systems are self-regulating and they can accommodate perturbations and maintain themselves. So you can make an effort to change law and policy. But first of all, in many cases, it doesn't really work. And in other cases, um, there will be reversion to something that looked a lot like it was before. 
institutional and legal efforts have long-term effects only when they have the backing of social movements. An example of this that may not be as familiar um, to you as it is in the U.S. is the Brown v. Board of Education decision in the 1950s to desegregate um, schools. And it did not have a very uh, quick effect, took a very long time, and the civil rights movement to make it happen. And subsequently, things have regressed again to where schools in the U.S. are are now very segregated again. Um, so, no, it's a it's a very complex thing to interact with a system and try a complex system and try to get lasting change because they're very resilient. So I mentioned before the civil rights movement, social movements are in another uh, important way to bring about social change. So reason and argument doesn't always work. And there's a whole additional paper in the background there about the source of moral knowledge. And I think that moral knowledge can be achieved through experience. I think it can be achieved through practice. And it's not always a matter of gaining moral knowledge through giving someone a good argument. So if we're not going to rely simply on argument, some people will say, oh, well, if you don't rely on argument, then the only thing that's left is violence. But I think that's a mistake. And drawing on Elizabeth Anderson, she says, between pure argument and violence is a wide range of contentious activities that are more or less disruptive of habitual ways of life. From petitioning, publicity campaigns, theatrical performance, candlelight vigils, litigation and political campaigns, to street demonstrations, boycotts, teach-ins, sit-ins, picketing strikes, and building occupations. People unthinkingly conform to norms on the assumption that others will as well. So collective refusal to comply makes the norm available for reflection. Resistance also reduces the motivation to continue conforming to the norm since the norm is failing to provide a basis for coordination. And if the resistance can claim a moral ground, then those who nevertheless continue to comply with the norm lose credibility, legitimacy, and status. Activism disrupts coordination by changing the conditions within which the practice takes place. Street demonstrations make it impossible to use the roadways. Strikes make it impossible for work to continue as usual. This is the disruption so that we can make the norm or the techne or the practice available for reflection and reconsideration. But not all change in the material conditions need be as explicitly challenging, disruptive, or unruly. Small material and cultural changes matter. So for example, in my teaching, I will usually put uh, the students in a circle rather than have them all in desks facing the front because that changes the climate of the classroom, changes the quality of discussion, et cetera. So now we turn just to the conclusion. Let's tie some of the threads together. A cultural techne is the cultural dimension of the local social regulation system. When internalized by individuals, it provides tools for psychosomatic self-regulation. So we, we, we internalize that techne and our minds and bodies coordinate without really having to think about it very much, think about driving. And this enables fluent coordination with others and structures our subjectivity. So you can have an identity as a good driver, more likely you'll have an identity as a good professor or a good student or a good mother or a good friend. We don't need to be coerced to fulfill our social roles. We do it, as Althusser said, all by ourselves. 
because of its coordinating function, the structure has some normative force because you know, without some coordination, we're in bad shape. And the existing terms of coordination have a kind of resilience. And so if we're going to maintain some coordination, you know, we should probably use the tools we have as far as they work. But insofar as this system regulates our interactions in ways that are problematic, morally, epistemically, and politically, it is an apt target for critique, and we ought to change it. But how are we going to change it? Ideology can be disrupted through attention to situated knowledge of the marginalized. So this is a way in which people who are marginalized will often see the weaknesses and the unfairness and the injustice in the system. So attending to their concerns and complaints. Investment in counterpublics, these are areas where, where people gather to try out alternative ways of interacting, alternative cultural techniques, alternative norms, and participation in social movements. Engage critical thought in the context of collective organizing and activism is the source of ideology critique. Public collective resistance supports and undergirds elite or legal efforts or a policy efforts or such to make formal changes. It puts pressure on social norms and our terms of coordination, and it inspires individuals who want to change their personal relationships. So let's go back to the questions we started with. How should we understand systemic, structural, and institutional racism? What does it mean to say that injustice is systemic or structural? And are these different terms for the same thing? How do systematic and structural racism land upon the body? So the first was the, inspired by King and the second by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And finally, how might we address such racism or injustice more generally? How might philosophy help? Structural injustice occurs, I've argued, when the practices that create the network of positions and relations distribute resources unjustly, distort our understanding of what's valuable, or organize us in ways that are unjust, harmful, and wrong. I haven't given you a theory of justice. I haven't given you a moral theory. I'm sort of assuming that in the background. I couldn't do that and what I've done here. So I'm just trying to suggest if we understand structural and systemic injustice, then we can identify those places where there has been an unfair distribution of the resources or a distortion of our understanding of what's valuable. But you do need a separate moral theory for that or a theory of justice for that. A systemic injustice occurs when an unjust structure is maintained in a complex system that is self-reinforcing, adaptive, and creates subjects whose identity is shaped to conform to it. So when you have the unjust structure that is instantiated and self-sustaining, that gives you systemic injustice. How do systemic and, uh, and structural racism land upon the body? Subjects are interpolated. That is, again, an Althusserian word. They're created as social subjects to occupy roles, to enact injustice, and to bear it without complaint. Those who resist face coercion. And how might we address such racism? And how might philosophy in particular help? We might provide resources to support broad social movements that change not only formal institutions, but practices. And philosophy in particular helps to change the culture by giving us new ideas, new concepts, new ways of speaking, 
and also can support changes in the material conditions. I just want to join all the dots explicitly because the title was asking systemic, structural and institutional injustice, uh, what's the difference? In the summary, you didn't distinguish between institutional injustice. I thought perhaps what you could do is here, let's let's take questions around race. Could you just, using that as an example, could you just, just for the, the slow ones in the audience like myself, just, just go through how we distinguish between systemic and structural injustice as uh, racism, and whether institutional racism is, is one of those two, or a third thing. Great, thank you so much. Um, wonderful question. So I think of the system as the instantiated structure. So the structure is a little bit abstract. It's a set of, of relationships defined by the practices and the places the, the, where one can occupy a particular role in a set of practices or in a relationship. So that can be instantiated by different people in different ways and in different cultures. So X is the mother of Y. That's a relation that has a mother and a child slot in it. That's the structure. And then it's instantiated in a system, right? So around, like in my family, it's an instantiated in one way, in my family system, because systems come at various different levels, in a different family, in a different way. But in, in, in the United States, it will be instantiated in one way, and in another country, it will be instantiated in a different way. So, so structures are kind of the skeleton, um, and that skeleton look, takes on different forms and shapes when it's, when it's instantiated in different material things, material bodies and people and, and cultures and such like that. So the system is the thing that is complex and dynamic. It has the causal relations in it. And the structure is just you know, a set of uh, more abstract sort of understandings of what's going on in the system. Then when I think of institutions, institutions are going to be formal sets of practices that define relations. So there's going to be relations that are like mothering relations. Most of those are informal, defined by you know, cultural expectations and norms and such. But there are some that are institutional. So the legal definition of mother who gets to count as a mother, what you do and have child protective services remove your child from you. Those are institutional. So in most practices or in a lot of practices, there's an interaction between the formal and informal that make up the practices. And those are what make up the relations which are instantiated in a system. So that's the picture. In the case of racism, um, the, a paradigm example is people thought for uh, some time that uh, in the 60s and 70s, that if we change the laws about race and Jim Crow, which was the, the system of legal segregation, then we could get rid of racism. Um, and it's true that there was tremendous success in getting rid of those institutional constraints that defined the races. But it didn't end racism because not all racism is institutional because cultures embody certain technes, they, well, they, they, they're constituted by technes that uh, shape how we view each other, how we 
experience, what we experience when we see somebody else, um, and what becomes normatively acceptable when you're interacting with people of a different race. And so, so in the case of race, there's there's the institutional parts of it, which still remains, by the way, because there's a lot of laws that are now not that are facially neutral in the sense that they look non-racist, but they still are racist because you can see through their impact, they're racist and their history is racist. So there's institutional forces. And so we should be working to change the institutional forces, the laws and the policies and such. But there's also a lot of other practices that are informal. And together, those make up the structure. They're the structure of norms, expectations, relations, and all of that. And when they get instituted in a system, that's when we're in the process of living them, embodying them, using our skills, et cetera, where the causal relations happen that maintain maintain them. So to get the understanding of how the system works, it's important to see it as embodied and connected in these complex causal relationships that that maintain it. Sometimes, you know, we're two two nations divided by common language, as we say, and we don't use things in the same way at different sides of the pond. In the UK, there's been a lot of talk about institutional racism in things like the police force. Uh, But it seems to me that what we're talking about there isn't to do with uh, formal rules or regulations. It seems to be uh, more cultural, more of a cultural thing. Um, So... Uh, how do you advise we we use the word institutional racism? And are we, in a sense, um, misdescribing a lot of things we call institutional racism because because they're not about the explicit rules, uh, the designed features, and so forth, but more about um, structures and uh, practices? So this is one of those places where I think the institution and the and the culture sort of uh, are are interdependent. So in the U.S., there was for a time a three strikes rule so that the third time that you had even a low level arrest, you would get sent to prison. And this was combined with a disposition for police to be uh, scrutinizing and attentive to behaviors in communities of color so that they were more the members of those communities were more likely to be arrested and so to hit the three strikes rule and to end up going to going to prison. And so um, what was happening is that there were, well, it's also tricky in about why were they spending so much attention in those neighborhoods? There are lots of different reasons where people have given for doing it, but some of it is just cultural. They expect there's going to be more crime there because that's where the black people live and that's where the poor people live and the black people and the poor people tend to be an overlapping set of people. And so there would be a disposition that would be part of the cultural techne to have assumptions about certain neighborhoods to then uh, monitor and police those neighborhoods. But that would then interact with a three strikes rule which would then have the result that there was a greater level of incarceration of people from those communities. So I'm inclined to think, as long as we know what we're talking about, you can use institutional for both because the police is an institution. Um, But I think it's important to see that you can't just change society by changing the rules. You've got to change the way, the, the tools that people have for thinking and speaking the assumptions that they rely on, 
the, the meaning of skin color, right? Skin color has a meaning, which is to say that people respond to different skin colors differently, to different hair textures and eye shapes differently. And it's not like you can change a rule and make that go away. You've got to do something else in order to uh, change that. And until you change that, changing the rules is going to be only part of the answer. Thanks so much indeed. Got a question here from a, a, a colleague of yours from the other side of the, the nation, Jonathan Jenkins Ichikawa. He asks, regarding the structural systemic distinction, won't structural injustices typically tend to be self-reinforcing? Do you have examples in mind of structural injustices that are not systemic? Yeah, I do think that structural injustices will uh, tend to be self-reinforcing. Um, but... I also think that structural injustices can be ineffective. You can try to set up a system where relationships are unjust, but people don't perform them very well because the, the, they rely upon um, a kind of responsiveness to people that is not culturally really apt. So you can go into a culture that's quite different from your own and, th and, and try to impose a system of structural injustice, but it won't work, right? Because, and it won't be self-reinforcing because the people in that context are going to go, what the hell, right? You know, or, or they won't be able to notice the relevant things that they need to notice in order to continue to enact it. Um, so I kind of, I don't, I wish I had a, a, a perfect example, but I think this sometimes happens when women enter into highly male dominated spaces or spaces that have been structured by male dominance and, or, you know, all kinds of when marginalized people go into systems that are, that are not well suited to their sense of self and understandings about how to interact and there's there's a kind of resistance to it because they're not going to treat their coworker or this person or that person that way. Now, in those cases, the, the most cases, what happens is that there's coercive measures that make them do it, and so that will be the self-reinforcing part. But if you could kind of take that to an extreme, and you had a society of people or you know a women's community where you came in and passed some policy or legislation or whatever that was structurally unjust, I don't think it would be self-reinforcing. I think it would dissipate. I think it, um, it would, people wouldn't really conform in the way they're supposed to. And this is something that comes up some in, in the literature on social movements, that the, the main thing that topples strongly coercive regimes is mass, mass resistance, right? Because even you know, of course, they're, you know, not everywhere, right? Not everywhere. We, we know that you can just shoot everybody who's trying to resist. But even quite coercive regimes um, will be taken down if there really is mass resistance. Um, so I don't know. That's my best, my best go, Jonathan. Thanks for your question. Thanks very much. We've got another one, actually, which gives us an opportunity to make a very uh, nice link. It comes from Garke Loeng, apologies for the pronunciation. Now, 
going to say a little bit about this question in a minute. What's the relationship between epistemic injustice and structural injustices? Are all epistemic injustices structural? Now, before you answer that, and I'm going to ask you in your answer to explain what epistemic injustice is for people not familiar with the term, but this does actually make a, a nice link with the, uh, the London lecture series the year before last, which was all about uh, this field of social epistemology and, and knowledge. We had various lectures talking about that. So if you're interested in epistemic injustice, do look up that archive of talks on our YouTube channel. But, but Sally, could you tell us what epistemic injustice is and, 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 and answer that question whether all epistemic justice is structural? Epistemic injustice has been an issue in uh, the literature in black feminism and uh, feminists of color and other you know, a marginalized uh, feminists. Uh, and it concerns the extent to which um, members of a group are not granted the credibility that they, they should be granted, properly speaking. Um, they're not counted as knowers, etc. And so that's one strong dimension of it that has been in the, in the literature for a long time. And Miranda Fricker, um, in her book, Epistemic Injustice, uh, articulated this as a, uh, an issue of testimonial injustice, where I can give my testimony about something, uh, affirm something, and, and not be uh, given due credit because of my social identity. Fricker also articulates a, another kind, which also has been in the background for, for decades and decades. She calls hermeneutic injustice. And hermeneutic injustice is when um, the language that is available to articulate a concern or complaint or to call attention to a form of injustice is missing, right? That, and the paradigm example of this is the phenomenon of sexual harassment. So until we had the concept of sexual harassment, men hitting on women in the workplace looked like it was just flirting, harmless flirting, something like that. But once we had the concept of sexual harassment, we were able to point out the extent to which this was a violation of equal protection, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so women were not being treated equally in, in the workplace. Um, uh, the notion of hermeneutic injustice, I think, is, is broader than some might think. And so it fits very well with my notion of a cultural techne. So when I say that there's a kind of a failure of our cultural technique. What I'm getting at is that the concepts and the background assumptions and the, the tools that we use to organize us, that they are inapt in some way. There's something wrong with them. In the case of background assumptions, sometimes it's going to be just that they're overgeneralizations or they're faults or there's something. But in addition, there's also just the very concepts might be problematic or or um, inferences, patterns of inference may be, may be problematic. And there's a kind of hermeneutic injustice that comes there as well. So she's a woman, so she will take care, you know, be good at taking care of kids or something like that. There's a kind of inferential slide that tends to happen there um, that is a source of, of, of problems. And you might want to say that there's a hermeneutic injustice in, in, in that background assumption, or even in the interpretation of someone as a woman, what that means and, and on what basis you make that assumption, there may be hermeneutic injustices there. So the question 
of, well, are all of these epistemic injustices structural? Well, I think of them as occurring, a lot of them occurring in the techne. So they're they're embedded um, in our techne and the, the failure of our techne to organize us properly, a failure of our techne to be able to appreciate certain kinds of things that are valuable. So I should step back a little bit. So um, I'm a pluralist about value. I think there are multiple kinds of value and that one of the things that a technique can do is block the sensitivity and appreciation of certain kinds of value or certain ways of valuing. Um, so for example, under capitalism, the value of something is often represented as its exchange value, its value in the market. And so you get like rent a womb or uh, sex work or things like this that seem to suggest that women's bodies are commodities that can be rented or or used, um, et cetera. And so there's a there's an occlusion or a, a failure to appreciate a certain kind of value that emerges. And so when we're talking about an epistemic injustice, I think, for example, in philosophy, there's a kind of focus on reason and rationality that can occlude certain other ways of knowing. There's an emphasis on the public and the objective uh, that something that everyone can access that includes the the significance of first person testimony and and first person experience. And so these are potentially um, epistemic injustices because of the association between men and reason, rationality and women and the body and the particularity and emotion and such like that. So it's in that techne where I think the problem lies. Just a little follow-up on that, actually. You, you talk about the different sources of moral knowledge and experience being one of those. And there can sometimes be an overemphasis on you know, the reason and, and, and logos and language and so forth. Um, I wonder whether you think that's actually leads to certain strategic mistakes. So I'm, I'm being a bit impressionistic here, but speaking to, to many people, a lot of people have believed that one of the biggest drivers for the advancements of gay rights in America has been as people came to know more gay people and everything, they just had that moral experience, if you like, which told them, do you know what? Um, there was absolutely no reason to discriminate against these people because the stereotypes they had before people were out or of, you know, awfully negative ones around perversion and so forth. But when people actually get that experience of, of knowing gay people, then, you know, that the, the, prejudice dissipates. And that experiential encounter which was perhaps you know made possible by a certain amount of campaigning to begin with was what really switched minds and i think some people have the concern that a lot of people who are advancing progressive courses um courses actually get too hung up on things like you know the language and everything there's a lot of emphasis on on getting your words right and people are slammed if they get the words wrong do you have any uh, sympathy for that view or, 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 or is it the case you think that actually you know we are right to really try and insist on on, on getting the language precisely correct, even, even if it's something that doesn't resonate with people perhaps you're trying to persuade? Yeah, great question. So I, I do think experience is uh, very important, um, not the only source of moral knowledge, but I think it is a source of moral knowledge. And I think that's in part because um, we are creatures who need to coordinate and we have evolved to be readers of other people's emotions and readers readers of other people's behavior and to have some degrees of concern and empathy if one of our 
members of our coordinating team is in pain or suffering or can't you know carry on and so there's there are reasons to to think that this is a pretty basic capacity to to gain understanding of her harm and injustice and such like that um, through experience. The issue of language and naming, what, what language does for us in part is it enables us to sort through the vast amount of information that is made available to us through our senses and other modes of, of perception. And and to sort of have some like little sparkly dust on it, right? It gets kind of, it, it sparkles and we see it and we notice it because our, our cognition is shaped to pick out things that we have clear concepts for and, and words for and such like that. Now, one of the things that why experience doesn't always work is that if you're so caught up in a particular framework of understanding and a framework of language, you can go into a situation and not see anything other than what you're told to think, so to speak, or what you have the resources to think or to see or to experience. And so sometimes what we need to do is to get people to experience new things and different things. And sometimes you can do that by giving people a new bit of language or a new concept. So a non-binary person, right? Whoa, suddenly, if you really have that idea, you walk down the street and the, it's not just that everyone who passes you is assumed to be a male or a man or a woman. There may be non-binary people and they kind of, they become visible, so to speak, or they become perceivable or experienced experienceable um, because you have this new bit of language that you can use. Um, so, so one of the purposes of insisting on having new language and having new concepts and moving us into new ways of using the terms that we use um, is it helps us reorient ourselves in the world or can potentially, it can also do terrible things, but it can potentially reorient us. Um, but I think it's also true that we have to be very cautious and and understanding that people, you know, the, you can't rock everybody's world, right, and, and have it work. You've got to move slowly and you've got to be patient and you've got to hear what their language is telling them and what you might be able to learn from given that language. And so I'm very opposed to a kind of policing of language, unless it's hateful. But I'm very much in favor of trying out new ways of thinking and speaking so that we see the social world that we're in differently. We pick up different kinds of information from it. Thanks so much. Great answer there. Now we've got a question here from Kang Tom. This is about Iris Young, who analyzes structural injustice as an unintended consequence of different individuals and institutions acting to realize their morally acceptable goals, which actually uh, relates to what you were saying earlier about being a pluralist about values, that we can have uh, more than one set of values and maybe they don't all fit in. Do, do you have an assessment of this? So I definitely agree that structural injustice is often an unintended consequence of people just trying to you know, live their lives as they see fit. But not all of it is, you know, the um, Jim Crow was not the unintended consequence of people just trying to live their morally acceptable lives. It was it was you know, an explicit effort 
to uh, marginalize and disadvantage groups of people. Um, and and I think that many of the people were well, you know, some people thought, oh, we're doing it for their own good, you know, because, oh, miscegenation is this terrible thing, whatever. But there were plenty of people who knew better than that. The design of the um, freeways that go out to Long Island, the person who designed that transportation system did so in a way that where the overpasses were made low enough that public buses couldn't go under them. And it was specifically so the hoi polloi couldn't get out on Long Island because that was for the rich, right? It wasn't him just trying to live his own life, an unintended consequence of, unintended consequence of his decision was that the hoi polloi couldn't get into the rich communities. It was a specific and explicit design choice that was made. So, so I do think, you know, maybe you could say, oh, unintended consequence of his him trying to live his, his best life. And I, I don't know. I think that's a little naive. You know, Exxon, Exxon knew from its own scientists the problem of climate change and knew that so and was so convinced by it that it made efforts to change its own oil rigs so that they would be um, less vulnerable to sea level rise. Right. But it was saying all the time, oh, yeah, no, there's no no climate change. Nothing we're doing has anything to do with climate change. I mean, people are evil. I mean, Young makes it seem like we're all just a bunch of good people. I mean, I hate the word evil, but we're all just a good people trying to live our lives and this terrible stuff happens. No, there are people who are intentionally trying to make a buck and they're going to make other people suffer in order to make their buck or to save the people in power who are going to serve their interests and stuff like that. I think it's much worse than what Young says. <laughs> okay, that's just really, I, I like that. But given that you accept that sometimes these things are unintentional and pluralistic of values, do you, do you think if we're going to sort of like have a constructive sort of public dialogue, we need a certain kind of, we need to give people the benefit of the doubt? So when it's Exxon with that, we know they're putting the woods over eyes, but do you think we should give people the benefit of the doubt or do you think we give people the benefit of the doubt too often? Well, I think interpersonally when we're trying to have a conversation about how we should proceed collectively in our community um, where there's genuine interpersonal connections then I think we do need to respect each other and give someone the benefit of the doubt and ask them to explain themselves and try to listen very hard I'm a believer in that but I think that there's not nearly enough protest and there's not nearly enough people calling calling out corporations and politicians and, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I recommend social movements on purpose because I'm a believer in civil disobedience. I'm a believer in hitting the streets. I'm a believer in, you know, mass, you know, refusal to participate in, in systems of domination. Um, so I think, yeah, you got to call them out. I go to David Lohner's question and bring this a bit back home to the discipline. How can the culture of philosophy be employed in order to com- combat those actors who preside in the discipline who actively contribute to structural systemic injustice? Um, these are not problems that um, the philosophy profession has been, well, not only, let's say, I don't, I, I get my own views, it's not only it's not been Im- immune to them, um, arguably it's been one of the worst offenders within academe. I don't know what you think of that. 
Oh, it has. No doubt about it. It has We've been one of the worst offenders. Well, I think it's very tricky because um, vulnerable people, grad students, untenured people have um, a lot of a lot at stake. There are many risks. Um, but I also believe that it is the responsibility of those who are in more secure positions to call out the bad behavior of individuals um, and not tolerate it in their departments and in their communities and in their professional organizations. And I think that's really, really important because there are individual bad actors. And um, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that climate is a huge issue. Climate is something that is very, this kind of terms of coordination and the norms and assumptions and whatever that aren't always explicit and not rule governed. But philosophy department climates can be very bad um, for women and racialized minorities. And so educating yourself about climate and what can change a climate and how to change a climate, um, that's really important. And that is something that can be done very subtly and, and done with, you know, find yourself an ally and do things a little bit differently and then do things a little bit more differently, etc. cetera. Uh, I think that that's uh, an important way to go. And then there's also along the way, there's been institutional changes in the profession. So even just that, this is only semi-institutional, but um, there was the, the gender conference campaign so that there was an effort to say, uh, do not agree to go to a conference if, if there are no women on the on the um, program, or if you're the going to be the only woman on the program, say no and explain why. Or if you're invited to be an author in a book and in a collection, and you're the only woman, or etc., say no and explain why. And make suggestions of other people who might. So those are kind of more institutional and um, have had some success, I think. I think it's much rarer now than when I was coming up for there to be whole books or, or, or conferences with only one woman. It's more common to have only one racialized minority because there are many fewer and um, those who are, um, are overloaded and we shouldn't be overloading them. This relates to a question I've got here from Wafa Abdullah, which um, I, th I think sort of follows this because you're advocating activism, you're activating social movements, you know, you're, you're whatever. And he's talking here about um, Michael Dummett uh, proposing to make racial injustice public and acceptable when it occurs. And the question is whether it should involve making public punitive measures stronger when racism occurs. And it's a little supp supplementary to that, because I guess uh, the background to this is a lot of people say that the problem with being too punitive and being coming down too hard is uh, it creates a backlash. So what do you think? Do we need to be more punitive when, not just racism, when these other injustices occur? You know, I think that this is a very, very context-sensitive question. I mean, there are going to be cases where individuals interacting with individuals need to be careful about their safety, and, and you have to make judgments about whether it's safe to call somebody out or not. Um, uh, in other cases, I think it's completely appropriate, um, but it will usually have costs and you have to make judgment calls quickly about those costs. So let's talk about the individual second and then I'll look at the structural one for a minute. Um, 
So I've done some bystander training and what works in bystander training is when you see racism occurring, um, how do you intervene in that in ways that are positive and constructive? There's a whole literature on this. And I'm not an expert, though I have done some bystander training, actually taught bystander intervention. So I think it's really important, first of all, to have a few strategies that are really low cost. So if someone says something racist, you say, excuse me, what did you say? I, I'm not sure I quite heard what you said. And then the person is being asked to repeat it. And oftentimes, if there's more than one person in the conversation, they're going to be listening to what the person said that they let kind of slide over. And then probably that reflection that they're going through will make it clear to them that there was something iffy about it. Um, and so they will start to sort of go, oh, yeah, well, I, I didn't mean it. I said, but what was it you said? I, I thought I heard you say you know, something. And so you kind of you kind of play dumb as a way to expose them and call for um, self-reflection and reflection on the part of the others. This takes practice. You have to practice doing this in front of the mirror or whatever. There are other things you can do if someone um, makes a, a kind of uh, make has employs a racist assumption um, in interacting with someone is that you can signal to that person that you saw the racist assumption and try and move yourself sort of dialectically in the way so that if the person is going to say something else, they'll have to say it to you. I mean, so, so for example, one of the standard examples is suppose you're with your department head or, you know, some other powerful person, a doctor, and there's a nurse in the room and the doctor says something to the nurse or the department head said something to the junior person. So in the case that's the most famous is the department head at a, at a party says to someone who comes up um, to join the conversation, oh, I'm glad you came by. I could use another glass of wine, please. And assuming the person is a waitstaff rather than a colleague or a graduate student. And you say, oh, I haven't introduced you to our new colleague, graduate student, whatever, so-and-so who's doing this really interesting work on such and such. And you say, I will go get the wine and you can take a minute to get to know the person, right? So you've just flipped the situation in a way that can be, you know, face-saving to some extent to uh, the person who's done the egregious act. Um but still is, a, is an effort to remedy it. So there are a million strategies like this that I think we all need to use that are interventions without being necessarily punitive. Okay, but sometimes you need to be punitive. Sometimes you need to say, shut the f up because you're being an asshole, you know, whatever. And I will say things like that, right? But then there's the other question of racism that is broader and more structural where I think we have to call it out. We have to challenge a policy that damages immigrants, right? Or damages uh, people who are undocumented or damages um, people with ch small children at home or et cetera, et cetera. Um, people who don't feel safe walking home at night um, because of the neighborhoods they live in, et cetera. I mean, these are, are broader things. And I think saying, you know, that's going to have a bad effect on this group of people or that group of people. Um, and we need to rethink that rule or that plan or that decision 
I think you can do that without really risking quite as much. Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes in this series, so do subscribe on whatever platform you use. Leave us a review, tell your friends about us. You can also watch videos of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Royal Institute of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at royalinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.